So, uh, welcome to the BCA podcast regarding the proposals going to the AGM in 2021. Um, I've got uh, three lovely people here with me. Uh, my name's Ross, I'm the Publications and Information Officer, and I'm joined by Andy McLeod, who is the um, Chair of the Constitution Operations Group and is responsible for an awful lot of these proposals, so we're going to get his expert opinion. We've got Jess Eads. Uh, would you like to say a little bit about yourself, Jess? Uh, impartial observer. <laughs> All-round bat-botherer. All-round bat-botherer, stalwart, yeah. Derbyshire caver. You've been around for ages and you are absolutely great. That's all I can say. Right, Mike, <laughs> what about you? <laughs> <laughs> Me, I'm just an average caver looking to um, average caver. help the VCA improve, basically. Yeah. And, and the, the idea about this podcast, try and get a more, what does this actually mean for normal BCA members? Because the last one that we did um, got a little bit wonky and policy heavy. So we thought we'd try and make it a little, at least a little bit more understandable this time around. So I appreciate you guys coming and uh, talking about some of the most boring stuff in British caving. So <laughs> I'm going to read out the first one. I've got it here. So this is Mark Sims. Proposal one, uh, and Mark has proposed that the ENT committee change a section of its anchor policy and essentially devolves responsibility for training people who place anchors to the regions. So previously, uh, my understanding of it is that the regions would suggest it, it would go to the ENT committee, they would rubber stamp it, and no one ever actually got rejected and so they thought they would just simplify it this way any thoughts on that andy Mark is a former ent yes uh, officer so it's it's come from the person whose job it was to do the rubber stamping and he decided it was a good idea to let the regions get on with doing their own anchors i guess basically or at least training of the installers so uh any thoughts on this jess um I think as long as there's a general training and a standardised level of training, then I think if it's sort of adding more bureaucracy for kind of rubber stamping it, I think, you know, local regions know what's needed and generally know the competent people within the region that are already capable of doing it. So I can't see why not. Mike? Yeah, I would say so that. I mean, really, the, if you leave it to the people who are already doing it, if you keep it regional, if, if the BCA get involved a bit, too heavy-handed it just complicates things again and, and, and puts doubt in the system where you know if it's not broke don't fix it <laughs> well the so the old system used to work in that we had a national policy um and one of the big frictions was that um people wanted to put uh, srt requirements on uh, bolt places and uh there were a couple of places that really disagreed with that of people who were essentially putting in lifelines for ladders that could put like adequate safe bolts at the top of a safe pitch head. And that's all they ever wanted to do. And they wanted to probably place about four bolts and that was, <laughs> that was going to be it. So um, I guess this is sort of treading over similar, similar ground that we've seen before, but I think it's relatively uncontroversial. I can't really see anyone having a problem with it if all we're doing is rubber stamping it anyway. So with that, we'll get to the meat of the issue. And this is 
one of the most complicated proposals I think um, has ever managed to get to an AGM and Andy should be very proud of this. But essentially at the last AGM, we were, um, the, a, the membership voted for us to rewrite section 10.1 or at least provide an alternative for it. Now, because it's a constitutional amendment, it needs more than 70% in favor. And um, what Andy did was he took the lead on this in the constitutional operations group. And he consulted a lot of people who had a lot of different opinions and managed to sort of distill them into three. And the three that I'm going to <laughs> briefly summarize is that the first one, get rid of it entirely. The second one, change it to the association shall not mediate between members unless requested by them to do so. Um, and then three, um, change it to the association shall not interfere in the affairs of a member unless it is necessary to do so to investigate a complaint raised by another member, brackets the complainant. Any action taken by the BCA should be the minimum possible to balance the competing rights and freedom of the member and the complainant. So <laughs> do you want to um, elaborate a little bit on what voting for each one means, Andy? Because it's a little bit unusual the way this one is being presented. Is it also worth, sorry, um, to read out what, one. yeah, to read the original. <laughs> I, I was going to sneak that back in um, <laughs> and make it look a little bit smoother than that. Um, but there we go. So um, for reference, section 10.1 currently reads, the association shall not interfere in the affairs of a member unless specifically requested to do so by that member. The association shall not mediate between members unless requested by them in writing to do so. So shall we pick up back with you, Andy? And... We've got three options there. What does it mean if we vote for all of them? So all of these are effectively separate, normal constitutional motions. And unless at least one of them gets 70% in favour, then nothing will change. Um, and the existing thing will remain the same. So if you feel, and there are quite a lot of people who feel it should say the same, you just vote against all of them. You get to vote on each of them yes or no, individually. If one of them passes 70%, then that's easy. That one becomes the new constitution and the others uh, fail. If more than one of them passes, say if two of the things get 70% and one of them only gets 65%, then those two both technically pass. However, which one gets more votes in favour, I think, or is it the greater majority, yeah. um, will take effect and the other proposal is written such that it will not take effect so that you don't get conflicting proposals. So if more than one of the, the proposals reaches 70%, only the most popular one will actually do anything, basically. And that's just to avoid introducing non-constitutional ways of voting or anything. Yeah, well, so the reason why it's bureaucratic and a bit arcane is that essentially anything to get a constitutional change needs more than 70% of the vote uh, because that's what's in the constitution. And so if you had a pick one option, then 
you could feasibly just have a three-way split or some form of split where actually none of them get the 70%. Um, but it's important to note that actually in Andy's three options, there are four options because you can vote against all of them. So that's, that's mainly what I wanted to highlight. So if we go through each of the options, because I think this is kind of important. Um, why do we think, well, with the first option, they want to delete it entirely. I guess if we take the counter argument, why is 10.1 important? Um, would you like to uh, lead on that, Andy? Um, so, is 10.1 important? Sorry, I should phrase There are that. many people. So, remember, this is a proposal that was been driven by the membership. So, it's like the membership went away and said, yes, we want you to look at this. Um, which presumes that a significant fraction of the membership don't like the existing thing. However, the consultation shows a significant fraction do think it's quite important. So just for a bit of background, right at the start of the constitution, it says the association is a national federation comprising individuals, caving, mining, and other related clubs, regional caving councils, and national bodies with special interests, all of which have autonomy in their own field. Um, and that's, what a lot of people think is good about 10.1 is that it's additional support um, against BCA interference into members. That might be regional councils, it might be individual members, it might be access controlling bodies. They're all members of the BCA. Um, so in the original things, it says, the association shall not interfere in the affairs of a member unless specifically requested to do so. So for a lot of people, that's an important statement of autonomy and they are worried that the BCA, without that clause, the BCA would be free to interfere in regional work. I'd point out, and obviously that's a reasonable point of view, because it's not the clearest clause, which is part of the reason that people have wanted to change it. I would point out that right, like the second line in the constitution, second sentence is, concludes with all of whom have autonomy in their own field. So. It's a decision for you as a member as to how important you think it is or not. Personally, I think that removing it will not really change anything in practice. Uh, and then the other half, the association shall not mediate between members unless requested by them to do so. That might, again, depend on what you consider mediation. For me, mediation is not something that you can do without the consent of both parties anyway. Um, rendering a little bit redundant but other people don't feel that way that was we found for the consultation is there are a wide range of views um, hence there are a number of options yeah I, I mean I was playing a little bit of a, a tricky game <laughs> there Andy because I'm essentially the reason why this one is um, uh, cropped up in that I was charged with having broken 10.1 um, over a certain access controlling body issue <laughs> And it was it was raised numerous times, and it was uh, found by council and the AGM uh, at every occasion that I hadn't broken. However, the reason why people think that is because of the vagueness in writing, and the main issue, as far as I was concerned, was more that um, <laughs> the argument was made that we couldn't um, interfere or look at something because someone else had complained about 
that person and that person hadn't come to the BCA or, or that organization hadn't come to the BCA. And I made the um, slightly tongue-in-cheek cheek remark that if, you know, that precedent sort of stood that we'd end up with, you know, if, if you had a club expel someone for being a woman or being from an ethnic minority, we wouldn't be able to go to that club and say, you're out of the BCA because they hadn't, the club hadn't written to us, but the person who had been expelled from the club mm. would have done in that situation. And for me, that was just completely and utterly wrong. <laughs> like that should be the, um, the starting point at which, you know, BCA should be able to get involved if someone raises the issue, but it's all about how you, how you then sort of progress from that. I understand why people want to try and keep any governance out of things because more paperwork doesn't make people happier. <laughs> what do you think, think about that, Mike? Has anybody actually used 10.1 as of the BCA has been involved at all? Um, no one has no one no one has ever used it successfully now yeah exactly so that means it doesn't work all, yeah yeah i should say all constitutional uh, where there is vagueness in the constitution an agm will decide and one agm may make a different decision to another agm yeah. i'd say that if your con your constitution there's a good Vagueness can be a good thing in your constitution when you're saying things that you should do. So you can say this is how, what you should do, but you don't need to spell out every detail and you can leave mm. a bit of flexibility. But when you're saying things you shouldn't do, you probably need to be a bit more specific, mm. ideally. So if we go on to the, so, you know, we've got the argument there for uh, deleting it, but the argument for amending it, so if, if we look at proposal two, and proposal two essentially just cuts off the second sentence. Uh, well, slightly, subtly different, but the association shall not mediate between members unless requested by them to do so. What that does is it preserves this sort of underlining of autonomy that people value that you see early on, you know, the first sentences in the constitution, which is why I thought it was redundant anyway, but um, you get that you get that point backed up, but it's left vague enough that if you do have an issue of someone being expelled unfairly on, or, or or you get a case of discrimination, that you can still get both involved. Any thoughts on that? Anyone? It's important that both parties are involved in the first place, but I don't see why it has to be both parties that have to agree on the initial sort of impetus of it. So if someone has a complaint, I think the individual party or club should have the right to go to the BCA and say, excuse me, I think something's out of line here. Can you look into it? And then leave it up to the BCA to approach the second party and say, X, Y, and Z has been, you know, said, can you explain? Because, you know, what you want is clarity and fairness across the board. Mm. So if the BCA are going to be involved in such a, whether it's access or discrimination or whatever, clarity is more important. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty sensible. Any thoughts, Jess? No, totally agree. I think, you know, it allows for any party to raise 
a concern and then uh, you know using um sort of conflict within a club with an individual is a good example you know it might be other members of the club raising it on somebody else's behalf because it might have implications to the wider club not just to the sort of victim let's say um and i think the bca to be aware of that and then choose to get those parties involved or at least reach out to see if um you know a reconciliation can be made or or more investigation you know is there a repeat occurrence of this thing happening um so yeah i think it allows for that a bit more clearer yeah i think it gives us a bit more constitutional wiggle wiggle room yeah. mm-hmm. I remember one of the ironies of um 10.1 is that um in theory the youth and development group of the bca could invoke 10.1 to stop any complaints about them which <laughs> i thought would would have been uh, <laughs> taking tongue-in-cheek to a new level but, <laughs> but there we go um and then finally we've got proposal c and that lengthens um the uh, 10.1 and it changes it to the association shall not interfere in the affairs of a member unless it's necessary to do so to investigate a complaint raised by another member and then defines it as the complainant any action taken by the bca should be the minimum possible to balance the competing rights and, f- and freedoms of the member and the complainant um i think the interesting thing about this one and what it does that isn't elsewhere in the constitution is that it puts in place a policy of the minimum possible to balance competing rights and freedoms by uh, and freedoms of the member and the complainant which is very subjective and is a lot of lot of grayness uh, what do people think about that well, also mentioned where appropriate. Well, who decides what is appropriate? Yeah, you know, it's just it's it's an open book. You know, you you're leaving it down to an individual personal choice, which yes. you're then putting someone's head on the block, which is what you don't want to do. You want the policy to be straightforward, so there's no personal choice involved in it. Because otherwise, someone's going to say, "Oh, well, I thought." And mm-hmm. was, well, I thought so. If you take that equation out of it, it just simplifies it. Yes, yeah. Well, that's what I think anyway. Yeah, and uh, Andy, do you think there are? Do you think there are any particular merits of this one? Uh, um, the, I think some people. Sorry, I think yeah. some people would probably see it as something of a middle ground, um, but all of. Kind of inherent to section 10.1 is that the issues being dealt with are very subjective so it's not really possible to write a bulletproof wording that says you like it's quite easy to write to not write something or to write something that says the bca can do whatever they want any of the time it's very hard to write the bca should only do these things when sometimes these conditions which are subjective are the case so it's very difficult um but i'd say this one is is trying to to provide something of a middle ground and in the future someone could see it as guidance so it may appeal to some people who aren't uh extreme extremely minded to go one way or the other between keeping it or removing it i, I guess what i'm asking more is what do you think the likely practical effect of it is 
as in, do you think that this 10.1 could be reasonably used? My personal opinion is that mm -hmm. neither the current 10.1 nor that proposed 10.1 I like to have any practical significance except that you have this vagueness where maybe they do and an AGM could later decide they do but they probably won't I mean fundamentally I think you, the BCA can to the first approximation should do what its membership wants so it is bound by the constitution but only to a degree um, because the constitution can be changed if the membership wants it changed you know they should act in ways that the membership want and if the BCA's council or whoever does makes decisions that the membership doesn't want, then they can be voted out. Um, and I think that's going to be more of a guide in some ways if there is actually an issue. Yeah. I think I think one of the interesting things that underlines all of these ones really is what happens if you break the constitution. In practice, nothing, I think. You just shouldn't yeah. do it. Yeah, you just shouldn't do it. And so <laughs> it, it's then, what do you see these constitutional rules for? Well, I, I, I'm a bit of a constitutional stickler. I, um, I was on a phone call with Andy Evis, and he, he said that I was um, uh, notorious for following the rules, which I th <laughs> isn't something that I'm normally known for, which I, I was very proud of somehow. Um, but well, some people see constitution as a guidance, and some people see it as absolutely black and white, and that's really what you're fighting against, isn't it? I, I think where I see it as helpful, and where I because ultimately, you know, BCA Council in the last year or so um, has broken the constitution at least four times, um, and there's been no consequence of it. What it allows you, what it allows you, the membership to do, is to take the argument up. It says, "Look, there is this bit in the constitution. This thing is going wrong, and I feel like you're breaking this one." And so it it lends some credence to an argument. And so that's the that's where I think actually this third um, proposal has has a little bit of merit, is if you see it in that light is that does this let someone go, hang on, BCA took the mick a little bit too much. They waded into this access agreement. Yeah, fair enough. That's what they're allowed to do. But what they did wasn't the minimum restrictive thing. They should have definitely done this. This decision needs to be revisited. That's, that's where I see this clause being invoked or being used. And so... It's a very grey area, <laughs> and you're talking a lot of hypotheticals. Um, but I think that's why it was such a difficult task for Andy to write anything on this. <laughs> because essentially when you ask people's opinions on it, you've got every opinion under the sun. Yeah. What, what do you think, Jess? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, it's... I'm sort of seeing it from different sides now that you've just said that, because my initial take was very much along Mike's in that I didn't like the fact that it was mentioning the minimum because it's so subjective. But when you look at it from the other end, like you've just suggested, where it could be totally over the top and, you know, things escalate far more, then it's easier defined that way. But 
it's trying to think in what context it's most likely going to be used in and what has the most precedent it's it's a tricky one really really is i'm sort of torn between the, the middle one and this latter one of which one would be uh, better sort of in my personal opinion yeah and I, I think another important thing to say is that these constitutional um amendments don't exist in isolation and so what ends up happening is actually we have a complaints policy and it's still being written and it will probably go to the AGM next time. But actually that policy gets passed by AGM, gets passed by simple majority, and that will nail down an awful lot of the process. And it will be very specific and it will be how you implement those parts of the constitution. But it will only require a 50% um, majority to overturn it at any AGM. So it's a little bit more flexible than a constitutional policy. Mm -hmm. And so you've also got stuff in the manual of operations as well, but the manual of operations can be changed by council. So that could be changed up to like, I don't know, well, however many council meetings there are a year. In theory, it could be changed like six, seven times. Uh, it never is. Like the uh, maximum in my uh, experience was that we had, I think, two manual of operations changes. And whenever they happened, people went through them in excruciating detail. And then um, everyone forgets about them and just goes back to working the same way that they did before. Because it's really hard to read a book every time you're going to uh, open your mouth or do something. Um, <laughs> so in a lot of ways, these the last proposal is kind of already done in other things it's just do you think that 70 percent number is a buffer you want to keep it there and i think that's that's the crucial element of of looking at this proposal so the first one says look we've got it covered in the manual of operations we've got it covered in a complaints policy that we're going to put in place and it's kind of covered in other bits of the constitution anyway. Let's just make this document shorter. The, the second one, you've kind of got a, let's take the problematic one where someone could use it as a defense in theory of getting out of a complaint um, because actually they have this autonomy and it sort of preserves the right for people to have their grievances heard. And then the third one, um, as I've just laboriously explained, sort of puts that 70% number in there so that if anyone actually wants to sort of change that minimum appropriate um, uh, clause there, it would be a lot harder to do so. Well, I, I think the third one is the weakest one, which I think has got less chance of getting through. Because of the caveat. Personally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because people are going to see it. And the first thing they'll do, human nature, is they'll see it as a weak point. They won't see it for what it is. Mm. But what you want to do, if you want people to vote, you, you want to make sure it's something that they're confident on voting on. Otherwise, they're not going to vote on it and you won't get your 70%. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's a numbers game. It's like politics. You... <laughs> it is politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... You, you want to get rid of the weak ones to strengthen the others is what is what you want really so if you give too many options weak ones nothing gets through yeah i mean i mean that's why it was arranged the way it was so that 
essentially the most approved of those three. Mm. Um, I think I'm I'm going to wait with bated breath because I honestly don't know which of these is going to go through. I know which is my favourite, but I also know that lots of people were adamant that the other one was their favourite. And so um, ultimately, does it matter? I'm always of the opinion it's whichever bum is on the seat really that matters because <laughs> they're the well, ones that yeah. actually they're yeah. the ones that actually put the rule in place or in fact enforce the rules. But um, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think it's whoever's fighting your corner for you because unfortunately the the BCA on the ten point one have never really there's no teeth in it at all. Mm. You know. We've had experience down here of access situations and they've got absolutely no power whatsoever to do anything about it. Because one party might complain, but the other one, if the other one doesn't complain or get in touch, it's dead in the water straight away. Yeah. I mean, one of the really important points, and I got absolutely torn apart by <laughs> various people, uh, various armchair gamers on UKC when I'd written this. Um, and it was completely taken the wrong way. Um, I wrote in a report saying, look, ultimately, we've got to do something about this because our only option would be to expel the person or like expel the organisation. And that wasn't meant we should expel the organ- <laughs> that organisation <laughs> in this situation. The, the point about it was we don't actually have that many options to do anything to our members. Like, ultimately, all we've got is, well, do you want your membership or not? Yeah. And that's that's what the BC, that's what the BCA can sort of resort to. And I think that's why people are so keen on the mediation, is to, like, if that's another thing between not being able to, you know, being completely toothless and not doing anything about it and the extreme of just kicking them out of the organisation, which, you know, for various access agreements, if someone loses their insurance, potentially the, you know, the access is lost. And then we're in even more hot water. That's not what, that's not what anyone wants at all, really, is it? No. It's just, it just, we only have blunt instruments and we're trying to like get to really <laughs> like <Yeah>. finesse <laughs> solutions here. And we're just, we're just smacking it with a hammer over and over again. Um, right. We'll see. Let's go, let's get on to proposal three. I think there's quite a lot of, dis- you know, there's quite a lot to think about proposal two. And I'm hoping that gives a good start, starting place for people to read a bit more and sort of come to their own conclusions, which is really the point of this podcast. So proposal three, this is one of the ones um, I wrote and it got got through the BCA COG group Um, and it's reorganising committees and working groups and there's quite a lot in there and so it's a bit impenetrable. To put it really simply, what it does is it merges the two types of group that we've got right now, which is working group and a standing committee and it just says look they're all just working groups the reason (laughs) the reason we had standing committees in the past and the reason they were there was they went look we're going to get all of the training officers together for example and they're going to come to a thing and then they're going to they should get a vote on council because they're sort of providing a service of bca 
and that's the fundamental difference is working groups have um, no vote on council and the terms of reference are set by council they're sort of created and destroyed there and so they're a lot easier to change and they're a lot easier to sort of slim down whereas um, standing committees have a lot of stuff in the constitution and so they have certain like obligations they have to meet um, ultimately both of them look very similar and then we end up in a situation where some people have a vote some people don't it also tidies up a few things like the PI officer which is my current role um, has a vote even though it's a head of a working group not a standing committee and so we've managed to blur the lines of something that was already a little bit a little bit off and so that's one part of it the other part of it which was ultimately um, put into the same proposal which I'm not entirely sure was sensible is to then merge the training committee and the equipment and techniques standing committee and really all that means is that because ENT doesn't actually have that many members is that the training committee takes on the responsibilities of ENT but it also it's also worded vaguely enough that that group of people when they come together can write their own terms of reference come back to council and say look this is what actually works you know if you want us to do the job we'll we'll write it or you've said that you know we need to have a member from each region and we need to have some representatives from a national body and that's what the requirements of the standing committee were so you've kind of got the point of the standing committee there because you've written it into their terms of reference i've talked for a long time there <laughs> andy do you have any clarifications or um, maybe a few pointers of any missteps i inadvertently made not too many i think um, i think the suggestion to merge ent and trading pretty sure part of that actually came from Mark Sims. Yes. Yeah, he um, so, also suggested it. Yeah, so he was the Equipment and Techniques Officer and felt that most of what they were doing didn't need a whole committee, so it could be rolled into training. I think he may have suggested the anchors could be a separate working group, but this is something that can easily be set up by council. Um, yeah. If that's the point, is that basically there's some amount of work that needs doing at a given point council can go right you 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 go off and do this and it's also probably important to note that say if you're going to ask someone what's the most important thing in in the bca or in caving generally they, they might say something like conservation access but actually the important conservation access work is done by the regions so while it is very important the it doesn't necessarily need it doesn't necessarily translate to masses of work at the BCA level. Um, what you need is a way of meeting all the parties together at the BCA level so that they can communicate. But a working group is, is perfectly reasonable to do that, to let all the regions get together. But by and large, it's the regions go off and do the conservation access work, for example. Now, here's the real test, Andy, is that <laughs> I'm going to ask Mike and Jess, did any of that make sense? Because <laughs> that, that was a lot of speaking. It was a lot of bureaucratic buzzwords. Did, 
is there is there any way in which we can just get this to actually just make sense to normal people? Because there's a lot going on. And I put it, yeah. you know, just put all together so that we didn't get this packed work and we'll get like a met afterwards. Some bits went and some bits didn't, and all of this. So just try to try and met together. Yeah, well, well, yeah, yes, you go first. What do you make of it? <laughs> Um, so I'll be honest, I was a bit confused between like, are we get, are we just merging certain working groups? Is this across the board, getting rid of committees and working groups and just having one or the other? Um, I can see the merit in just having working groups and things if, um, if that's the gist that I'm trying to understand, because it means that you can, um, probably progress things through a bit more quickly, be a bit more streamlined in working, uh, not duplicate throughout things. But I think as long as those working groups still had the broadness from the different regions, if it was something that had, you know, training training and equipment is a kind of broad brush, it, it affects us all in the same way, but perhaps access can be a bit more of a regional issue but I'm thinking sort of changes to the Crow Act that needs kind of everybody to to come together and discuss but then your working group might go totally outside of a normal committee group because you might have people in different fields that don't sit in any of these groups that it'd be like you actually know what you're talking about we want to bring you in and a working group probably allows for more of that outside engagement being pulled in as and when's needed but having sat on a committee before, I know when when committees are uh, written into constitutions that it, it can have a knock on effect. If you try and get rid of that, how many other changes are required within the constitution? Um, so I'm, I'm looking at this just on face value. I can see the merit of working groups, but um, totally unawares of all of the other ramifications it's going to have. Yeah, it, it, it is a big old change. Uh, but, you know, there's no two ways about it. And the constitutional changes in it basically delete standing committees from the constitution. Mm -hmm. And so that will remove a couple of votes. It will remove the vote from the conservation access officer. It will remove the training officer's vote. It also happens to remove the PNI officer's vote, but they have a vote from a separate AGM proposal from years ago. And it, the idea is to try and get the number of people in council who've got positions and voting positions mm. down so that actually there are there are voting positions open already so yeah. if they do want to vote they should just run for one of them yeah because really it's not all about the votes it's actually about getting the system to run as efficiently as it can because at the end of the day you're all volunteers you're all giving your all free time for nothing the last thing you want to do is have committee after committee after committee when there's absolutely no need for it. You know, your, your time is valuable and things won't get you done enough as it is because it's just wrapped up in committee meetings to have another committee meeting. Yeah. And what you want to do is eradicate that, really. So I'm pretty much on board what Jess was saying. Um, one of the important changes is that standing committees, you can only make changes to their terms of reference. So if you want to give them another role or you want to add people onto it or there's been an issue with it throughout the year and actually 
you know, someone's being sidelined or you want, you know, the BCA as a whole wants someone else to sort of be brought in, you have to wait to the AGM. They're kind of protected in that way. Whereas a working group, uh, it's pretty much always um, accountable to the executive and council. There, there is that element to it as well. So it's about yeah. ring fence power from the BCA council versus the AGM. And you know, do we decide everything at an AGM? Or do we let count? Do we let the people that we actually pick to go to council do it? Um, it allows for us. It allows for a swifter response to things. Yeah. If, if the matter arose that a swift response was needed, we can't wait like or potentially a calendar twelve months to uh, to start action in something. Resolve it. Yeah. 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 Mm. Andy. The. AGM can, of course, still tell council what they want. I don't think they're entirely bound by it, but even in this proposal, there are instructions for council as to how the working groups should be set up, which is how this yeah. regional um, requirement that's, will be set. So that, that's how we preserve, always, yeah. Can always tell council what they want. But basically, it's council can, if they want to, create a little civil service of working groups. <laughs> um, there is nothing in the constitution about working groups because it's just a, if a job needs doing council can go let's make a little group and get some work done it is in the manual of operations which is in the constitution so in, yeah. it is back it is backed up in a very technical way that literally no one other than us two care about <laughs> so um, you do have constitutional backing for a working group ultimately, but it is it is dependent on the manual of operation. Yes, it is true that when there were only standing committees, probably there were a reasonable number of people who knew how they worked. But as the different things proliferated, weird exceptions, the number of people who actually understood what's, how standing committees and working groups worked and what meant what in what case dwindled, because it's just not very exciting. Yeah. Right, I think, unfortunately, that one, <laughs> I don't think it's going to get that much clearer. I think we've kind of got to the nub of it, really. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I wrote the thing, but I'm not sure whether it'll pass just from whether people will actually pick out bits and pieces that they, they feel opposed to it. And maybe we need to have a little bit more of a staged uh, proposal. But, you know, you never know until you actually put it to the vote. And there are certainly different ways that you can you can do that in the future. Um, anyway, let's move on to the next. So proposal four, Andy, do you want to um, <laughs> come up with a with a summary of all of the changes in proposal four? Because it there are a lot of changes listed, and I don't think it's as radical as you would think, given that it takes a couple of pages. Sorry, the first thing I would say is that the list of minor changes is incomprehensible, unless you're willing to spend about an hour putting them all back into the Constitution. But the link uh, takes you to a nice black and red document that actually makes sense. Yeah. And there are no terrifyingly significant changes. In fact, there are some changes in the Constitution that don't, that if they're written correctly, don't change anything. They just make the constitution match current practice. So um, the first part 
of the changes are to explicitly permit uh, what it describes as teleconferencing meetings. Um, I think COVID has shown many organisations, again, how a constitution can be bent or just ignored briefly if the membership wills it in order to get things done that need to happen. But it's still nice to put into your constitution a bit more flexibility so that you can hold a virtual AGM even when you, and I think the BCA's virtual AGMs have worked very well. Um, so we will likely continue that even when we don't actually have to, hence this flexibility being added into the constitution. There's a change that means that minutes from a general meeting must be published, whereas previously someone had to actually ask for it. So it's a minor change, but not, not terribly controversial, I think. There are some typographical fixes and slight improvements. Um, there's a reduction in the length of time. So after an AGM, there'll be a, an online ballot, which may not happen straight away, at least because someone has to actually code it up and turn it on. But previously that was for approximately 30 days, interpret that as you will. Um, and now it says 14 days. Um, most people voted in the first week. Very few people were voting in the last couple of weeks. So that's why that change has been made. Just to, so that you don't spend six months of the year worrying about the AGM one way or the other, either beforehand trying to get everything through with a very long time scale, or afterwards when it takes you, you know, if it takes you two weeks to get the thing out and then you have to wait 30 days, you're nearly probably two months before anything actually happens after an AGM and it's just extra. Yeah. There's a little bit of clarification about special and emergency general meetings. Um, extra case for calling an emergency general meeting. Normally it's two members of the executive, but it could be one member of the executive and three other council members, which is not particularly exciting, but it could be useful if, say, one of the executive has died and another post is unfilled, then it becomes impossible to hold an emergency general meeting. Um, so that just adds a bit more flexibility. Um, and then there's some changes which shouldn't really change anything, but just make it explicit how the constitution has already been interpreted by AGMs, um, which are things like everyone has to be voted in favour. So if you've got a position and someone stands for that position, even if they're the only candidate, the AGM voted like a previous AGM voted that they had to be voted on and voted in favour. And as it was an AGM decision from the membership, that became the interpretation. Um, you can guess whose fault that, that was. Well, <laughs> writing that, so that's what we're writing into the constitution. So it's not a constitutional change as such, it's just making the wording match what AGMs have previously decided was the interpretation. At the risk of Opening up a, a Pandora's box here, Andy. Yes. What do you think the drawbacks of this are? Oh, of not electing people who are uncontested, or like having to elect people, or more generally the whole proposal. I thought they're subject to a vote of approval. Yes. So. So they're still. They have to get voted on at some point, even if they're yeah. uncontested. They still need to be voted, and people have to vote in favour of them. I would say that 99% of the time in most organisations, it doesn't make any difference because if no one else is standing, they'll get voted in. Um, it's ironic that the BCA, despite for most of its history, not actually having more than one candidate for a post, 
um, has actually voted against a few people at AGMs. This is much less of an issue now that the voting is online. Yeah. Because when 600 people see this one candidate, they will tick that box. And I think that's very reasonable, personally. If someone is willing to stand up and do the job and someone doesn't like it, then they should stand up and do the job. And if they're very much not liked by everyone, then this does provide that safety net. But I can't see it happening very often. Um, I think I've missed one other change, which is previously general meetings were like annual general meetings. The deadline was like the day before or the day after the last council meeting, which probably seemed like a good idea at the time, but it's actually a nightmare. Um, yeah. It's been changed to a fixed time period for submitting your proposals. As otherwise... <laughs> everything goes wrong. And if you add an extra council meeting, you then have to have a new deadline and then you can break everything. It essentially allows BCA council to operate between like the council meeting two or three months before the AGM and the AGM. So it seems like a really pernickety point, but actually it's going to make quite a lot of difference. Ultimately, everyone has to sort of rush there like, look, this is what I'm going to do for the next three months and all, all of that sort of stuff into a meeting that is already bogged down by constitutional this and constitutional that, um, whatever's going to the AGM. So that's, <laughs> although it sounds very boring, it's, it's quite sensible. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I had I had problems with um, the way this was written. I thought the proper way to propose a constitutional amendment to section eight was just to write it all out. Yeah say, look, we'll scrap Section 8. This is what we're replacing it with. Just because I, I, that's my mode of thinking. I think it's clearer. Um, but obviously, there are many ways to skin a cat. And um, that is also included in this proposal. Um, two left. <laughs> and they're, they're a quick two, I promise. You've all been absolutely wonderful at putting up with all, <laughs> all of this. And I don't want to make it too long for, that people are going to start... Um, tuning out there's proposal five which changes chairman and chairmen to chair in the constitution it basically just degenders it um i mean i wrote it <laughs> and, and andy, andy come up with uh, arguments against this for me please um no <laughs> oh there isn't one really is there all you're trying to do is be a lot more PC. Yeah, I mean, there's a little part of me that's sad that we didn't have a chair, that we didn't have a woman elected as chairman. You know, it, it's kind of, that would have been like the proper underlining statement as to how pointless that sort of thing was. <laughs> sort of how out of date the constitution is. And be like, oh, really? Yeah, well, I'm a chairman, not a chairwoman, you know? Yeah. You just um, wanted to, to make a big statement then, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I mean, some people said, uh, a chair is something you sit on. And I said, well, would you like chairperson? And they went, no, that's even worse. And so <laughs> I was like, well, I don't think we can come up with anything else, can we, really? <laughs> so, yeah. I, I'm assuming everyone thinks this is a good idea. Well, it's middle ground. It's not offensive, so. Well, if we're going to be updating the constitution, we may as well tidy up a few things, I suppose. And then the last one is the update to the equality and diversity policy. 
and quite <laughs> technical. Um, as far as I make it, it's basically changing it so that it doesn't just apply to employees, it applies to the membership, which is how it was actually written in the first place. But if you actually read the old policy, it technically only applied to people that were employed by BCA. And so that's the reason this has gone in. Um, <laughs> I can't really see any other major changes in it. Um, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. Andy, anything anything that you've spotted? Um, so I haven't really looked at this one in detail yet. Oh, um, no worries. So there, there are a couple of things where one, one of the few additions it does is it, it, it puts in um, examples of direct discrimination, associative discrimination, this, that and the other, which are already in there. It just doesn't necessarily list them and some of it, some of it, it changes. Um, and then it, yeah, it basically takes the word employees and it tries to make it more general so it applies to members as well so if you have someone doing all of those sort of discriminative things it's anyone in the membership even if the bca isn't paying right i think we've ended the marathon there thank you very much